My friend and fundraising superstar, Ria Wong, just launched her first book, and it's called Get That Money, Honey, The No BS Guide to Raising More Money for Your Nonprofit. And it's fabulous. It's part workbook and part love letter to fundraising, and it's full of actionable strategies that you can use and start implementing today based on Ria's 20 years of experience in the trenches raising millions. You can get a copy on her website, riawong.com, or on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. To celebrate the book's launch, I'm re-releasing Ria's interview that we did last year. So take a listen and be sure to get the book. Hello, and welcome to Nonprofit Nation. I'm your host, Julia Campbell, and I'm going to sit down with nonprofit industry experts, fundraisers, marketers, and everyone in between to get real and discuss what it takes to build that movement that you've been dreaming of. I created the Nonprofit Nation podcast to share practical wisdom and strategies to help you confidently find your voice, definitively grow your audience, and effectively build your movement. If you're a nonprofit newbie or an experienced professional who's looking to get more visibility, reach more people, and create even more impact, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Nonprofit Nation. I am incredibly excited for today's show. I have Ria Wong, and I was lucky enough to be on Ria's podcast, The Nonprofit Lowdown, in December 2019 to talk all things nonprofits and social media. So Ria has such a fantastic bio. I'm going to read it to you. Over a 12-year period as the executive director of Breakthrough New York, she grew their fundraising program from about $200,000 per year to $3 million in 100% private donations annually. This included funding from institutional foundations, corporations, events, and individuals. And what I love about Rhea is she made all the mistakes so you don't have to. And now she's on a quest to teach others what it took her over a decade to learn because the world cannot wait for important change. Her newsletter features regular truth bombs for executive directors and fundraisers, as well as adorable photos of her Lhasa Apsil Stevie Wonder Dog, which I love that name. <laughs> Welcome, Rhea. Julie, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. And I will say for the newsletter, it's worth joining for just the dog photos. Just I'm the dog sure photos. a lot of people do join for the dog photos. I know <laughs> I they mean, make me really happy. I mean, you have to highlight. You got to give the people what they want. You know what I mean? You do. So let's begin with your story, which I know can sound intimidating, but how did you get involved with the work that you're currently doing? Yeah. So, you know, a little origin story here, but basically I was a 26 year old executive director, right? Very common story, no formal training. Like, okay, fundraise, have mm-hmm. fun. You know, Just here are the fundraise. keys, here, here's your email, go. So go and manage people and do programs and do marketing. Right. Exactly. A budget, manage a board. By the way, board. you're 26 mm-hmm. years old, right? You don't know anything. Of course, at 26, I thought I knew everything. Anyway, neither here nor there. But I <laughs> I remember the first day on the job, I Google, what does an executive director do? And then the second That's Google amazing. was, how do you fundraise? Because at that point, I had done like a charity fundraiser for like AIDS research. Mm-hmm. That was it. Like, mm-hmm. didn't know anything. So you could imagine it was a long and hard slog <laughs> to try to figure <sighs> out what I was doing. 
what I had going for me was I was a good writer. Mm-hmm. I had a good cause I was raising for, and I'm a pretty, you know, pretty affable person. Like, mm-hmm. Good personality. Literally, those are my three assets. And I was like, okay, <laughs> we're hey, gonna go figure this thing out. Empires are built on those three assets. Listen, you get a nice smile. You can talk to people. You, you can make it work. But I, you know. Lots of trial and error, lots of failure, lots of bombed, you know, funder meetings, mm-hmm. lots of board meetings that went awry, you know, all the things. And so when I stepped down as executive director at the end of 2017, I actually had not intended to be a consultant at all. I actually had joined a, a tech firm that it didn't work out. I was like, oh, this is not my jam. And so one thing led to another, and I started consulting with other ED friends who were like, oh, you're free? I have a project. So one project led to the next project, led mm-hmm. to the next project. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really until last year that I was like, let me just focus and double down on fundraising because I was doing all sorts of, I was like strategic planning yes. and you know, talent management. And I was like, okay, all this stuff, I don't really care about that. You know what I care about? I care about money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I care you can't about do anything money. without money. Can't do anything without money. I realized I was successful in fundraising, but it wasn't an overnight success. Like I mentioned, it took me over a decade to figure out how how to raise that much. Mm -hmm. But I also think so many EDs and so many, frankly, senior development people are brought into the job without any training in how to actually do the job, Mm -hmm. right? Especially EDs, especially founders, because they start the thing because they have this great idea. I call it hugging the panda bears, but then they don't realize that their job is actually to fundraise and they're never really given any training in how to do that. So I started the fundraising accelerator specifically to accelerate people to get yes. them up to speed to start doing specifically major gift fundraising because I right. think that's where the money is. But it's the scariest thing because it's it's not formulaic in the way that foundation money is or corporate money you know, with foundation money, it's like, we get it, right? There's an RFP, you do the proposal, you have the site visit, da, da, da. like mm-hmm. we understand that dance. Major gift fundraising, anything can happen. Anything it's can like, happen. It also sounds very scary. It sounds very scary. It sounds very scary too, because I think we all have baggage about money. So whether or not you're raised with a lot of it or not a lot of it, we all have this emotional baggage about money. And when you're doing major gift fundraising and talking to individuals, it's very personal. It's very vulnerable. You're looking someone in the eye and asking them to give of their personal resources to Mm -hmm. an idea. And that can feel really scary, but even more so if you have this baggage about money that you really haven't exercised. And actually, I wish I brought it with me. I have a a mug with one of my sayings, which is, it's only weird if you make it weird. Right. I love that. So we walk into these asks and we've already made it weird in our heads. And so then it just like comes out weird and you don't actually get the ask out because you're all like freaked out and you're creating mind drama. Anyway. I absolutely love that because one of the very first pieces of advice I got when I started public speaking was don't go out there and say, I'm really nervous. I'm tired. You know, I haven't had coffee. This is my first speaking engagement. Don't ever start a webinar that way. Don't ever start a public speaking. Don't ever start a meeting that way because it sets the tone and it makes it weird for the other person and it makes it weird for the audience. I need that on a shirt. I absolutely love that. (laughs) It's only weird if you make it weird. It's only weird if you make it weird. It's not going to be weird. Thinking about major donors, they're used to being approached 
They're used to being talked to. They're used to being thrown investment opportunities and pitches and other nonprofits are used to talking to them. So if you make it weird, it's going to make them feel weird. And then it's also just going to set the tone for the entire relationship. So, wow, I love that. Okay. So the thing when you said pitches and I, I am on a single woman mission to get rid of pitches because I feel like yes. nonprofit people have been, I don't know, we've been like brainwashed into believing that like we have to have a pitch and a pitch deck and whatever. I have never raised money on the back of the pitch deck. Like there's mm-hmm. no magical combination of words that you can say to someone that will get them to open their wallet or their checkbook, right? Right. right. It's a conversation. Yes. And and I think I mean, I, I can blame Silicon Valley for this, but like yes. people don't think about investing in a nonprofit the way they think about investment opportunities. It right. literally lights up a different part of their brain. Mm-hmm. It lights up the same part of their brain that is reserved for family. So it's a conversation and it's a relationship, not an investment opportunity, right? And so when you approach it in a transactional way, then people... Think of it as a transaction. It's not a transaction. It's a mm-hmm. relationship. So like that's mm-hmm. thing one. And then thing two. So I, I use dating analogies all the time. Yes. So, you do. I loved that. I love your recent email was all about a dating analogy. Yeah. Jonah Helper was on my podcast, but even before Jonah, I was using dating analogies, but like you would never go into a first date being like, okay, I'm going to tell this person all about me and like why they should, why they should date me and why we should get married. It's like, okay. you might, but you would probably not succeed very well. <laughs> yeah. You're probably single. Here's my there's resume. A reason. I know. I like to read my resume on my first date. Right? Yes. And so, you know, I think the same holds true with major donor asks. Like, mm-hmm. you have to have a conversation. You have to warm it up. Also, when people think about major donor gifts, they're usually like, okay, well, when do we get the check? And it's like, okay, slow your roll. Like, mm-hmm. you actually have to develop a relationship first, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I think when when we approach it in it's like transactional, like give me the thing and I'm going to talk all about myself. It's like, it does not set the right tone for the kind of partnership and relationship that you want to have. So you wrote a great email recently with the subject line, fundraising is just a math problem. And I think we talked a little bit about this. We create so much drama around the fundraising process, but you say it really boils down to a simple equation. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So it's just a math problem. Asks minus no's equals yeses. Mm-hmm. So the more asks you put out there, the more no's you're going to get, but the more yeses you're going to get, right? And the better you're going to get at asking. And the better you're going to get at asking. And the, and the more you will, or the less you'll take it personally, right? Because I think there's no way to do this work without being told no. And I think a couple of things here. I think number one, it's not personal. Like I think if you take every no personally, you're going to get burnt out very, very quickly, yep. right? At the end of the day, they're not saying no to you personally, Julia, or mm-hmm. no to your idea. They're just saying it's not for them. And like, that's not right okay. now, not for me. Not, right, yep. not the amount, like not my thing. That's fine. And I think, you know, your job as a fundraiser is just to create this amazing party and then see who wants to get invited. Yes. That's it. Like, that's yeah. what the job is. And some people don't want to come to your party. That's cool. There are lots of parties going on. Don't take it personally. Oh, I love that analogy. So I was I was listening to a business podcast and one of the women said that she had taken her daughter and the Girl Scout troop to pre-COVID to the grocery store to sell 
boxes of Girl Scout cookies. Mm -hmm. And the girls were very nervous and shy and they didn't want to talk to people and they were just so nervous about rejection. And so she said, well, your job is to get a hundred no's. I want you to get a hundred no's today. So obviously the more people they ask to get those hundred no's, they sold out of their boxes of cookies. They, you know, they created records, like a state record for boxes of cookies sold. And I love that analogy, like for business and for fundraising, your goal is to get to a certain number of no's because that means you're making a certain number of asks and you can't get to the yeses without the no's. So I love that equation. I also love the concept that you talked about in an email of askers and guessers. This one really, really resonated with me. Um, So tell us a little bit about that concept and how it relates to nonprofit culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. So so this is... I'm going to give a shout out to my friend Chitra who told me about this. So basically, it was this Atlantic article where it was like an advice column and the person wrote in and she was like, oh, my husband's like... college buddy who he hasn't talked to in years, you know, emailed us and asked if he could crash on our couch for two weeks while he was in town. And I was like super offended by that. And like, you know, but but I feel bad Should, like saying no, but, but whatever. It went on and on. And the response was, oh, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are askers and guessers. Mm-hmm. Askers are the people who are just asking. They're just at like they might get a no, but they're just asking. Yep. And guessers are the people who ask only after they know the answer is going to be a yes. Wow. Right. So they're the people who are like trying to, you know, do it around the edges and like are very opaque and they're, you know, it's all subtext and like they're reading the signs and reading the tea leaves. And so if askers are asking askers, it's all good. If guessers are asking guessers, it's all good. The problem is when you get askers and guessers together, because they are coming from two very different cultures. And so if you get an asker and a guesser together, the guesser will think the asker is like rude and presumptuous and like, well, how dare you? Because I I would never do such a thing. And the asker yes. thinks of the guesser is like super passive aggressive. And yes. like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. just, just speak plainly. What do you want? And so I think where we as fundraisers get in, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way armchair sociologists here, but the way in which women are socialized, we're mm-hmm. socialized generally, I think, to be guessers, right? Like we have to just like guess at people's intentions and like we want to like make sure that yeah. we're taking care of it before they even have to ask and like anticipating everyone's needs and da-da-da-da-da. Yes. 80% of the fundraising field is women. So I think there's mm-hmm. a very strong guest culture. Yes. And ironically, a lot of the people that we interface with are coming from a strong ask culture. So while they personally might be guessers, but like they're coming from finance, they're coming mm-hmm. from law, they're coming from tech. Like these are very sort of forthright, say what you got to say kind of cultures. Mm-hmm. And so I think as guessers or as fundraisers, we overthink it, right? We like to do what I call procrastilearn. We like Ooh, to sit and we procrastilearn. Do like, yes, right? I do it too. <laughs> we all do it, but we're like, I'm going to sit and I'm going to like research this person, right? I'm going to create a profile. <laughs> and if I do enough research, I will find this magical combination of words that will unlock this. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. you could pick up the phone and just have a conversation, right? Because mm-hmm. I, I think we make so much about you know, trying to guess at what people will want to do or trying to guess at whether this is a fit or trying to guess what their assets are, trying to guess if they want to be involved. Mm -hmm. Why don't we just ask them? I just had a client call with a lovely client who I love, who I will not name. 
And I'm sure if they're listening, they will know that I'm talking about them. So sorry in advance. But we were talking about how the events department at this particular organization creates events and then tries to force people to come to them. They don't actually create events that people want to come to. And they have never asked their donors or their constituents or their stakeholders, what kind of events do you want to see from us? So I love that idea of, I mean, they're, so they're obviously guessers rather than askers because askers would say, send out a survey or call people on the phone or say, what kind of events do you want to create? You know, what do you want um, to learn more about? What interests you? What fires you up? I think that is so interesting, but that really, that leads me to my next question. What are, you know, some, some other common assumptions, some limiting stories that hold us back? And do you feel like it's this culture of, you know, you said 80% of fundraisers are women. Like how can we overcome these gender norms and all of these things, these kind of bullshit that we've been told our whole life? Yeah. Well, before I respond to that, can I I go back? Go back. Yeah. So the one thing I wanted to say to you is I think we have to take a page out of the for-profit world. Like I can't visit a single website without being asked, would you contribute to a survey? Mostly I say no, right? Right. But you have to ask. And some percentage of people will say yes, and you'll get valuable information from that. And not just for research purposes, but literally to engage people. Like, do you want to be involved? Mm-hmm. Chances are, if they've taken the time to answer your survey, they do want to be more involved. Yes. Are you prepared to make a gift? Mm-hmm. What are we doing well? What could we be doing better? I mean, it's just like you need the data to improve instead of sitting. Like, I feel like so many nonprofits sit there with this crystal ball and they're thinking about mm-hmm. all these like weird ways to like gather data, like back end analytics. I'm like, why don't you just talk to people like a human? Yes. Yep. So, anyway, guessers so and askers. It's just such a great theory. I love it. Yeah. Well, the other thing is I I think people are also like, oh, well, we don't, so this gets here, the question about limiting beliefs, like, oh, we don't want to bother people. Uh Uh-huh. If they don't want to answer you, they won't answer. Our job is to not bother people, but our job is to communicate our mission. That's right. Our job is to raise funds, to raise awareness, to get people on board. And that involves, and I always say this, that involves a little bit of attraction and repulsion. You're That's going right. to offend people. You're going to get unsubscribes. You're going to get people that say they don't want to hear from you. You're going to get the nose. But right. if you're doing important work, that's just sort of, you know, that's sort of part of the, just par for the course. Well, and I think, you know, the work that you do with social media is really interesting because at the end of the day, people engage on social media because they want to know more about you, right? Mm-hmm. They want to hear more. They want to learn more. They want to maybe be engaged in like that. Your job is to go from like that wide point of the funnel of like, okay, I'm going to like a post to actually like, is this somebody who wants to be more deeply connected to our organization? If so, how? Yep. But you're never going to know if you don't ask the question. Exactly. No, exactly. I think that I really also think that we are just, like you said, unfortunately, there's not a lot of official training that goes on in college or in professional development settings around fundraising. So we have conferences, we have webinars, we have a mm-hmm. lot of different societies and affiliations and associations. But what happens so often is you're a program officer, like you said, you want to hug the pandas. And then all of a sudden you are elevated because you're good at your job. 
you're elevated to this role where you have to get wildly out of your comfort zone, which was mm-hmm. hugging pandas. And you want to, I mean, you, you probably want to just go back to that or you want to revert to something comfortable. Mm-hmm. And now a word from our sponsor. I'm here to tell you that this podcast episode is sponsored by my newest free training, social media in 20 minutes per day. This is where I give you my exact framework and process to schedule and organize your time so that social media does not take over your entire day and to-do list. Watch the replay for free at social media in 20, that's 20, the numbers 20.com. And be sure to tag me on social to let me know what you think. That's socialmediaand20.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So something else you talk about, and I'd love to get your sort of perspective on this, how can the sector better cultivate more of a diversity of fundraisers and more executive directors, more fundraisers, more directors of development of color? Oh man, Julia, you've asked the million dollars. I only ask that because you write about it and you talk I, about it. <laughs> well, what's awesome is in my accelerator, I have majority folks of color. And I didn't hey. do that on purpose, but you know, I love it. And people have found That's me and see. obviously they have resonated. I mean, I think a couple of different things. And and actually I can share a white paper that was put out by Cause Effective about this, which is pretty interesting about yes. not being able to attract and then retain folks of color in the sector. Mm. But a big piece of it, I think, has to do with the amount of training that we're offering and intentionality that we are paying attention to the people who we're bringing into the into the work. Like no one grows up as a little kid and like, I want to be a development director when I grow up. Like we don't even talk about what that even means, right? I think your point about you know, being more transparent about what is this job? Because actually I think in some ways it is related to sales, but they don't have sales you know, majors in college either, which is like a critical step of business. So I think mm-hmm. that might change over time, but I think we also have to create fundraisers. Anyway, so I think being able to be more transparent about what this job actually is, being more transparent about the difficult dynamics in, in the job, because I think, you know, when you're coming up into relationships of money, power, privilege, race, class. I mean, it's very complicated, right? And to pretend that these dynamics don't exist does not do anyone any favors. Mm -hmm. And I think to be able to have those conversations, frankly, and to be able to support fundraisers of color, especially young fundraisers of color into the profession will do a lot. I mean, what's interesting is you do see young folks of color entering sort of the beginning stages of fundraising. So that's a lot more transactional. It's like database manager or grant writer. Where we start to lose people is in the relationship development with major donors. And And I totally understand that it's not comfortable to walk into a room where you're the only person of color talking to predominantly older white men, right? Some of whom may have some very shall we say, antiquated ideas about race and mm-hmm. socioeconomics, you know? And so mm-hmm. what we're asking fundraisers of color to do is to step into these situations where they experience, you know, microaggressions and personal harm and, and putting themselves kind of in the line of fire in order to get the resources that their organizations need. So short of like large systems change, I don't know what the answer is, mm-hmm. except I think in the short term, 
we can provide more of those supports, provide more of those training. And frankly, you know, I can't tell you the number of times I on the phone with people about my accelerator and it's like, great, 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 great. Yes, yes, yes. Like, this is exactly what I need. Yeah. And then I tell them the price. I'm like, I don't have that in my professional development budget. And I'm like, right. okay, okay. Number one, this is not a professional development yep. fee. This is an investment. This is like the same as if you were investing in a CRM. You are increasing the capacity of your organization to fundraise. So that's mm-hmm. thing one. Thing two is... Why are we not investing in our people? Like if we're yes. saying that we need to raise more money, then we need to, it takes money to make money. And so I think that's a big piece of it as well. I mean, some other limiting beliefs that I think that we have as a sector is that there's not enough money out there. Okay. Yeah. We are living in the <laughs> richest time in human freaking history. Okay. Billionaires, by the way, had a banner year last year. I was reading 100%. that there are more billionaires. There were more billionaires created and there was more wealth generated in 2020 than any other year, which is oh. very insane to me. Yeah, no, it's totally. But look, the stock market is all, at all time highs. Bananas. All mm-hmm. of this federal money coming out. People are doing well. I mean, not everybody, of course, but like in general, as, as sort of like big picture, jobs are being created. So like... Don't tell me that there's not money out there. There is more than enough money. So I think first we have to just really get that in our minds. Like there's more than enough money out there. My job is to find the people who want to be part of this. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we start from the place of actually deeply believing that there is enough and that I'm enough and that what we're doing is creating real positive and needed change in the world, then I think we approach the whole thing differently. Yes. It's almost like, again, to go back to the dating analogy. When you were single and trying to get a date and no one wanted your number, you were like, I'm going to be single forever. Mm-hmm. The minute you get into a relationship, mm-hmm. all of a sudden everyone wants your number. Yes. That's because desperation is a stinky perfume <laughs> and, and you have to bring the right kind of energy to it. Right. Yeah. So if you come from a place of like, I am awesome. What we're doing is awesome. You should want to come to this party. It I changes the whole thing. I absolutely love the metaphor of I'm throwing this really awesome party. It's not for everybody. It might be for you. Come on in and see if this, these are your people, see if this, yep. these are your ideas, your values, your beliefs, your ethics, uh, see if this is for you. So yes. it's just, it almost is more relaxing that way. If you think totally. about it that way, because you're yeah. not trying to bang down people's doors and force people to pay attention to you. No, the thing is that you can't convince anybody of anything. That's that means- right. Having worked with children my entire life, I'm like, oh, that's right. You can't make them do anything. (laughs) Yeah. All you can do is open the doors, give them a little taste. It's like, you know, it's like when you go to Costco and they have little samplers, you're just giving them a little sample. You want to buy this thing? It's delicious, but some people will say no. And like, that's okay. Maybe it's not their thing. And you're right. It it takes the anxiety out of it. Cause I feel like we're so anxious and we're so white knuckled and we're like, Oh my God, if I don't like close this donor, this is the end. This is it forever. Yes. Yep. But it's not because as we said before, there's plenty of money out there. So it's never the last donor. It's never the last gift. I don't know if you read, speaking of that, the scarcity mindset you're talking about Nell Edgington, she wrote a book called reinventing social change Girl, I had about... Nell on my did podcast. You? Yes, I, I have did. Her mind. Oh, she's the best. Yeah. yeah we, we so I love the talk of abundance mindset. I think that mm-hmm. it's been so frequently talked about on podcasts. I listen to business podcasts and business school. And like you said, you know, the for profit 
sector. Although what's so funny is whenever I say for-profit, my husband just says business, just say business. <laughs> yes, but, but nonprofit like, is for business profit, as well. He's like, that just means business. So no, but see, nonprofit means business as well. That's the thing that that's really true. Drives and me crazy. I hate that we define ourselves from what we're not. Yeah. Well, and the, the thing that I tell executive directors and aspiring EDs all the time is like, oh, you're starting a small business. You realize that, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. I mean, there's like no two ways about it. And they're like, no, but I'm in it for like the mission. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're starting a small business. You still have and, to make payroll. You still have to answer totally. your stakeholders. Yeah. Well, and the thing that blows my ED's minds when we do the work is I say, you know, 65 to 80% of your time should be spent on fundraising. And they're like, what, 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 what? And I'm like, whose job do you think it is, if not yours, to bring resources into the organization to do that? Well, I started it because I really like love kids. Or I really love panda bears. Like, yeah, I get it. I get it. And I love that, that that's what you love. And that's not your job. Your mm-hmm. job is to hire other people to hug the panda bears. So I want to tell you about my first director of development job. When I um, we moved to Virginia, we're from Massachusetts right after we got married. And I started a, a job at a domestic violence shelter. And honestly, my office was in a different building from everyone else. <laughs> they were moving buildings, but I got stuck in the old building somehow. No one would talk to me. And the executive director would barely meet with me. She's very lovely, by the way. She's very, very stressed out and busy, but she would barely meet with me once a week. So it really was a case of, oh, we just hired this outside person. They're going to somehow go make magic and never speak to us again and somehow raise all of this money. And it was exactly the case of that. The executive director had been a program director, working in the trenches, working the support groups, working the hotline, working in the shelter. She was so good at her job. She was elevated to executive director where she had to manage mm-hmm. HR and facilities mm-hmm. and people and all of this awful stuff that she, and she hated fundraising. Mm-hmm. So it was a mm-hmm. huge, huge challenge. So what I actually, I wanted to bring this back to talk about your fundraising accelerator, you know, sort of as we wrap up, because what I think is so interesting about it is that a lot of the fundraising programs I see out there are for development directors. And then the mm-hmm. leadership programs are for executive directors. So I love that this is a fundraising program for executive directors or yeah. for leaders who definitely don't have the skills and the confidence. You know, they don't, they maybe don't know where to start. And I love that it's a community too. So yeah. Yeah. yeah tell yeah. me more about sort of what gave you this idea. How can people find out more about it? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea is a simple one. It's, it's kind of obvious because I was an ED who needed to fundraise. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of EDs, like the one that you described, it's a very common story I hear, mm-hmm. which is like, I, I don't really like fundraising or like, I don't really want to do it. Or like, I'm going to hire a development director and like magical money will come to this yes. guy. I'm like, how do you think that's going to happen exactly? Right. Because I think, you know, when I hired my development director, I told my board, like, listen, this person is going to come on board. And that just means that all of us are going to be working on development way more Mm -hmm. because this person will have bandwidth to actually manage it all. But that doesn't mean that she will take care of it. She will put you to work. So if you all don't want to work harder on fundraising, we shouldn't hire her. Like Mm -hmm. that's full stop. And I think it has to be the ED's responsibility. It has to be the board's responsibility. And there's no person in the world who's going to come in and make magical money. Like I call it the development fairy. The development fairy is not going to come and wave a wand and money's Mm -hmm. going to fall out of the sky. They are merely a facilitator 
of getting the fun, like the real front 